welcome to this first um, Unheard podcast, in which we'll be trying every week, Ayesha Hazarika and I, to get to grips with some of the issues that we'll be discussing on the Unheard website, and always bring a special guest or two along with us as well. Are you as nervous about this, Aisha, as, as I am? You seem really nervous. I'm very excited about it. I think it's going to be a historic success. Historic? Yes, it's a historic wow. success, yes. It's interesting because you and I have met through doing lots of paper reviews and we are very much on the other side of politics, but I think we've got a commonality. I think we're both quite feared by our own parties at the moment, feared, <laughs> feared and loathed by our own leaderships at the moment. And for those who do not know us, I'm on the sort of right, the Conservative party in Britain. You're the a Labour party. We both work for sort of party high-ups in our, in our time, but we're now free to speak our mind. What, what do you enjoy more, actually? Did you enjoy being part of the system? Or, you know, you're writing now, what, for the Scotsman, the London Evening Standard, and appearing on TV and radio. Do you enjoy being the commentator, or did you like being in the arena? I have to say, I still miss being in the thick of it, and I do mean that literally. I think there is... Um, <laughs> It's a great privilege to work in politics. There's a great camaraderie as well. Mm. And also it's nice to think you're being part of making the news rather than commentating yeah. on the news and that you're actually shaping things. But having said all that, having your own voice is a, is a really nice thing as well. And not having to clear things with lots of boy special advisors who say you can't say this, that and the next thing. <laughs> well, me too as well. I certainly miss being part of the, part of the system. Um, and one person who is quite close to the current leader of the Labour Party is uh, joining us um, Hi, today. Pleasure to be here. And Sam Terry, um, you've managed to find Sam and be, be our guinea pig for this first um, <laughs> You're podcast. our project, Sam. You're like our live... Experimental game. Yeah, our live experiment. No, you're our political animal experiment. Um, no, Sam um, is, you know, I, I've known Sam, Sam for a long time. I think actually our paths first crossed many, many years ago. We were doing lots of um, work on anti-racism and um, stuff you're doing with barking and against the BNP and things like that. So Sam's been a long-term activist, somebody who um, greatly respect. I think sometimes we've probably been on slightly different sides of, of the Labour uh, probably. project. Probably. <laughs> but you know, Sam is very, very close to the Corbyn project, has been a, a big figure, um, quite a public face of, of Team Corbyn. And if anybody knows really what's at the heart of Team Labour, it's Sam and Team Corbyn. Well, hopefully I can give you a few insights today for your first well, podcast. We're, we're, we're looking forward to it. Um, but what we're trying to do in this um, podcast is we're going to start with a topic of the week each week um, and discuss that. And then we'll talk to our guest um, as the main event in the, um, the podcast. And um, what's the topic for this week, Aisha? We are talking about the blonde bombshell, not Boris Johnson, the other one, <laughs> Donald Trump, making his maiden speech at the United Nations. And it um, was you joke about the, the, the similarity, but I think Boris, when he is in New York, like he has been this week, people do mistake him for <laughs> Donald Trump. Certainly there was one occasion when people came up and wanted their photo taken with him, and he was very flattered, thought that they were wanting a picture with the former mayor of London, but they did think he was Donald Trump. That's about one of the worst insults I think you could probably... They should go jogging together. <laughs> could you imagine that? Could you imagine <laughs> Donald Trump jogging? Yeah, no, that is not a sight. I mean, it's bad enough seeing Boris Johnson turning up looking sort of pink and flushed and slightly glowing. Nobody really needs to see that. Um, but I don't know, I just thought his speech was 
I mean, I don't know why I was surprised because, like, Trump always does, you know, what you think, oh, he's not going to go there, and then he, he does go there. It was a classic Trump speech. It was bombastic. It was muscular. I mean, only Trump would turn up at the United Nations and basically try and declare war on North Korea and herald the beginning of World War Three. But I think part of his message was what he's worked out he's very good at doing is I think he's very good at speaking to his Rust Belt fan base through the prism of an international topic. Mm. He's very good at saying, I'm going to be really different from the guy who went before me. I don't want the UN to applaud me. I'm going to say America first. I'm going to love the fact that they're going to hate it. It's going to draw gasps of horror from everybody. The Swedish um, foreign minister said it was. she was horrified. She said it was the wrong speech, the wrong place, the wrong time. But that feeds brilliantly into Trump's brand, which is America first. Yeah. Well, look, I didn't agree with a lot of it either. But uh, in the spirit of us disagreeing... Um, you know, it was, a, it was a bombastic speech. That's clearly what it was, and it was intended for his domestic audience. But, you know, we're in this mess with North Korea, partly because the guy before did nothing about North Korea. Trump is having to try to sort out, in his own distinctive way, a problem in a few months that Barack Obama did nothing about over, over eight years. And, of course, the United Nations did nothing about as well. The United Nations is revered because it has great um, uh, highfalutin uh, aims at its core. But ask the people of Darfur or Rwanda or Syria you know, what the UN you know, uh, did for them when they faced their, their great crisis. The idea that Beijing or Moscow uh, should be a, uh, uh, able to authorise a military intervention only when they do, the butchers of Grozny, the butchers of Tiananmen Square, that a, um, an intervention becomes legal. The UN is a fatally flawed institution. Now, it didn't need Trump's sort of hammer on it. It needs more of a scalpel, I think, to, to reform it. But um, the UN is one of the most overrated organisations. It has Saudi Arabia <laughs> Look, on its Human Rights Council. I do not disagree with you that it's a deeply flawed organisation, but that, I think, doesn't really... I think Trump was using that as a foil to sort of go in and make the speech. A lot of his international interventions are done to distract people from the fact that he is not delivering on all the things he needs to. He's having a terrible time as a domestic president you know he's not delivering jobs and things like that for the Rust Belt. he's not, not delivering, delivering the thing like the yeah, war exactly he's not delivering anything. But what he's very good at is look here is a, a smoke screen here's a distraction over here and of course the, the, the North Korea situation mm. I don't think is, it's that the North Korea kind of has put himself put itself on the map and sure. the agenda he couldn't ignore it but that's but that's not him actively taking action saying right he didn't come in and look at his inbox that day and think right you know Obama, you know, Obama didn't do anything on North Korea. I'm going to steam right in. It, it, events have precipitated, you know, his interventions. The problem he's got is he can talk tough all he likes. What is he actually going to do? That's the problem. He can't really do very much. Even his close military advisors have said to him, this kind of like, you know, rampant muscular Team America talk is not the right way to deal with somebody mm -hmm. who is essentially even more weird and psychopathic than Donald Trump himself. And this is not, you know, it's not a solution. Even Vladimir Putin has said, 
there's not a military solution to this. It's got to be diplomatic. Now, when Vladimir Putin is the grown-up in the room on domestic or global politics, you know things are in a pretty bad situation. Did you watch the uh, speech, Sam? Yeah, I did indeed, and uh, I sat there thinking, you know, for you know, a young person in, in Britain, you shouldn't be looking at the potentially most powerful man on the planet and being as frightened almost as when, you know, Kim Jong-il is firing missiles across Japan. I mean, I just, it, it, it's just astonishing that we're now living in an era where the person who actually has the biggest nuclear arsenal, the person that has the most powerful army on the entire planet, is basically going to the UN. And in, yes, in such a bombastic way, I mean, I, I just thought it was, uh, most of the world would be looking on aghast. It doesn't instill in me that we've got uh, a stable and sort of forward-thinking and progressive future for the next 10, 20 years of humanity. Mm. American interventions have not exactly had the greatest track record of success, uh, to put it politely, over the last few years. If there was any inkling that this actually could turn into a hot conflict, it's one in which clearly the guys in North Korea are mad enough to actually use their nukes. And I think that, for me, is incredibly frightening. So I'd like to see a much more diplomatic solution. You know, there's got to be a way where we can get China to put economic pressure on North Korea. Surely there's got to be that route. Um, I think North, you Do know, you think there's not a possibility, though, that Trump... May, I'm, I don't know, but Trump making the sort of aggressive, frightening noises that he is will actually force the Chinese to perhaps accelerate their efforts, the Russians to accelerate their efforts, because you know, Ch North Korea is on the verge of having this nuclear capability. That has happened not just on Obama's watch, but the current Chinese and Russian regime's watch. It, maybe this is just kind of the, 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 the wake-up call that the rest mm -hmm. of the world needs. Is, is, is that plausible? Actually, I think it potentially is. I mean, the, the point that North Korea have now got to, where they can fire, you know, an ICBM over parts of mainland Japan, is not only concerning because they've got that ability and are clearly not that far away from getting a nuclear capability to go alongside those missiles. It also means that a country which has had 50 years without a proper standing army and a sort of constitutional commitment to not having nuclear weapons, which I think is broadly obviously a good thing, are now thinking they're going to need to get tooled up as well as the region kind of the regional yep. tensions uh, go up higher and um, what worries me I think about Trump is a bit like Aisha said his rhetoric is so strong what is the next step beyond that so if they sort of either call his bluff or he doesn't do anything further or isn't able to get any of the other regional powers to act then I think he's going to a little bit like the emperor's new clothing and that then doesn't necessarily help Kim Il-jong be pushed into a more conciliatory position either. I mean, I think the word you used there, tooled up, or the phrase, is that that's at the heart of this issue. Lots of, um, you know, leading military and weaponry experts have said it's very difficult to, to, to go in, to steam into North Korea and just stop it all. We don't really know the extent, mm -hmm. what they've got, how developed it is. It pr probably is pretty developed. In a way, the key thing is not escalating it, it's stabilising it. And I think we're also placing too much confidence in China. China have uh, sort China obviously doesn't want World War Three, but China have always been clear if America attacks North Korea first, they're gonna side with North Korea. Mm. They're not going to back the Americans. Well, we're going to have a commercial break now, but not a normal commercial break. It's just to advertise something on Unheard that is relevant to this discussion. Alan Mallinson, our resident historian columnist, 
I wrote a piece about Korea that you can find uh, by Googling it. And, and it really looked about the absolute barbarity that the Korean peninsula has faced over the years from all of its neighbors. This is a people who've had all of their neighbors invade them, uh, extraordinary um, humiliations and um, uh, tortuous uh, uh, conflicts that they have suffered. And Alan Mallinson's point is, actually, this is a nation that wants to defend itself. And um, he said that he thought the rush to the nuclear weapon was actually, rather than uh, Kim Jong-un being a madman, is actually taking the very rational step that he's seen the regimes in Eastern Europe collapse and realise that if you do not produce enough consumer goods, enough basic wealth for your people, your regime will collapse. And actually, a nuclear weapon is a much cheaper thing than actually a large standing army. And he's reducing his standing army and he's accelerating his nuclear programme as an economic way of ticking the defend your nation box mm. and also provide enough um, material for um, your people. Now, I don't know whether that's true, but I thought it was an interesting article and I certainly recommend it. Uh, just on that quickly, yeah. there, was a, there was a, I think it was um, a phrase from Putin where he said, he's echoing that, where he said people would eat grass before giving up their nuclear weapons mm. because of exactly that argument. Mm. But, uh, but people that would not necessarily eat grass before giving out their weapons are the Corbynistas. <laughs> in the li- is, that a, is that a beautiful segue into... Amazing. Uh, and also it's good because everyone's <laughs> vegan now. We do this. Wheatgrass. Veganism, champagne, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so, Sam, introduce yourself for um, um, our listeners, if you don't mind. Uh, what, what's your role in the Corbyn camp? And tell us honestly, if you can, did you expect the election result that uh, happened in June when um, for those who are listening in other parts of the world Labour came incredibly close to uh, preventing Theresa May going back into Downing Street. Mm, absolutely. Um, so look I mean I, I don't work at the moment in an official capacity uh, for Jeremy. I was obviously director of his uh, second leadership campaign um, but I work for a, a union who often donate me as a kind of offering as it were or donation to the cause and so that means that for example I worked as head of trade union relations for Sadiq Khan um, and then obviously went to work for Jeremy last year. I mean my background really is as a campaigner and you know, particularly spent a long time uh, working on anti-racism campaigns against the far right. Actually with both Conservatives and Labour at different points uh, uh, within that, uh, that particular part of my career. Um, but obviously I'm very much plugged in with Jeremy, his team and people there so I guess you know, I sort of play as helpful an advisory role as I can because you know, like Aisha, I'm deadly serious about Labour being in government and that being uh, a transformative project and I think the interesting thing is you know, I'll, I'll put my hands up. You know, I did think that we wouldn't do anywhere near as well as we did in that last uh, election. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. I thought that we would do well in certain places. I thought that we were going to surprise people about how many young people we not only uh, registered to vote but mobilised to vote. I knew that that was definitely coming because I just think that the thing that's happened, and it probably hasn't happened actually since you know 1997 and the whole kind of you know new Labour project, is a cultural renaissance that's going on around Labour. And I think you can see that through things like the World Transformed. You can see that through a growing ecosystem of online kind of activity and blogs, but also the fact that you know music artists, 
you know, uh, normal artists are getting involved in this project in a way that I haven't seen for like more than a decade, I don't think. And I knew that that would tap in. And I think also there's a, there was a lot of anger amongst young people for a variety of reasons, perhaps that we can we can discuss. Um, I was also concerned as well about sometimes the way that we were deploying our resources, and I've been on record saying this. I think that you know, as a party, we do need to have a rethink in terms of how we campaign. You know, but we are now in a unique situation where we have more money that we've had to campaign, certainly than Midiband had in, in 2015, and obviously far more members. And I think if we got that calibration right, actually, in the election... Where's that, where's that extra money come from? From members, because you're over 500,000 members now, but... Mm, yeah, near, near 600,000. Yeah. So, I mean, clearly unions obviously yeah. still donate quite a lot of money, but, you know, the legislation that's been brought in by the current government is going to have a dramatic effect on that. But the bulk of uh, the money, and I could be wrong this year, but I think it's around 14 to 15 million pounds that's, that's come into the party over the last 12 months was from its members. Mm-hmm. And I think this is very interesting. I think for your mm-hmm. listeners particularly, bearing in mind that the Conservative Party membership is probably dipping down to, what, 130,000 stats out last week saying the average membership was 72 years old I mean it's literally uh, from unfortunately it sounds <laughs> morbid to say that young <laughs> yeah and so you, on one hand you've, you, you, in the wound, you, so you've got a party in Labour that is the the biggest social democratic socialist party in the western world in any country now and it's sort of going towards Latin American levels of membership which is quite remarkable given that most of the political commentators thought you know mainstream political parties are dead in that sense. I thought your party wanted to avoid Latin American comparisons. <laughs> <laughs> at the well, it's just I don't know anywhere else that's got a bigger membership. Um, but it is interesting because, it, you know, in some ways, you know, from my point of view, I'm very keen that we have a good relationship with business. There are a few big business donors, you know, Ecotricity being a sort of well-known one. Um, the one that Ed Balls famously mentioned <laughs> when he was asked for a business supporter. Is that right? Was that the one he could mention on news? I, I don't know BBC if he could remember time, an, anybody. Yeah, yeah. I remember and Cameron had a good joke saying, uh, Bill somebody. <laughs> <laughs> but it is a unique situation because it means that, you know, I'm someone that's always you know been very in favour of kind of, you know, better sort of, you know, uh, corporate lobbying registers, you know, more transparency around the revolving door in Westminster and actually for a, a mainstream political party that is on the cusp of government to not have to rely on the influence of a single corporate donor is remarkable in modern British political history. The fact that they can basically run an election campaign purely off the subscriptions and donations of their members. And by the way, I mean, it's also worth mentioning that there are obviously now lots of other parts of the kind of labour ecosystem that also have growing memberships and also kind of uh, were able to raise money to actively campaign um, in the election. So I think that's interesting that that's happening at a time obviously when potentially over a lot, over the next five years the amount of money that unions can put into the party could potentially um, fall. But we I had um, Liam Halligan, one of our columnists, the other day. I'm saying too much here, actually, but. Um, um, he was actually looking, Liam's on the right, like me, and mm-hmm. he was saying crony capitalism is probably one of the biggest issues in the world today, concentration of market power and a few big companies. And he said he's worried that people like Elizabeth Warren and Jeremy Corbyn are well ahead on this issue. And he feared that it's partly because of the money from business that fills Tory and Republican coffers, that this money is holding them back from taking on what are equivalent in some ways to the to the monopolies we had a hundred years ago in the rail in the railroads etc that were broken up by antitrust laws, and so um, I think I think it may be a major problem for the Tories and the Republicans and the right generally their reliance on business in the years ahead, even actually if it doesn't hold them back, the perception that it might be holding them back. 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely spot on. And I think that, you know, we can talk about this more, but the whole sort of Sanders phenomenon and the backlash against Hillary Clinton, that kind of stuff is tied in with this idea that actually the establishment in both the centre-left and the centre-right came really just tied in so much in terms of lobbying that meant the legislation was either changed or amended or even brought in to benefit those companies at the expense of ordinary people and I think that that's something now which is kind of almost common parlance amongst you know just ordinary you know sort of voters uh, in this country and I think that that is a huge challenge actually for the Conservative Party um, having said that you know my sort of broad analysis of kind of you know Corbyn, the Labour Party and what's happened over the last few years is that actually you know, Corbyn is very much a sort of symptom of his times. I think that you know, in previous times there wouldn't have been necessarily the, quite the possibility of things erupting in, in the way that they had. You had both the combination of kind of a growth in digital democracy and the Labour Party's decision to allow kind of you know, far bigger and greater participation. And that's been a debate on the right and the left and Conservative and Labour Party about primaries, all this sort of stuff. So that happened actually and people on the left and trade unions on the main were campaigning against that. But that combination of ability to be involved in a conversation and then to have a stake in that conversation at the same time as kind of 10 years of wage stagnation you know austerity starting to really bite because I think actually under Cameron's uh, government austerity obviously was started but it didn't really bite in you know, look you look at local government most of the cuts really came in actually over the last two years uh, where they really started to hit people and so I think that kind of combination of not just people at the bottom end not just working class people but also middle class people starting to think actually the economy is really not working for me and whose interests is it working in? And I think that's exactly on your point, Tim, that it seems to be working in the interest of a few big global corporations who don't seem to play by the same rules that all the rest of us do. If you're looking at your payslip every month and you know your PAY is taking out your taxes, and then you're reading in the newspaper like you know you've just bought a coffee from Starbucks or downloaded something you know from Amazon, and at the same time they're not paying any taxes, it just doesn't seem I'm to sit right with I mean, I, most I, people. I mean, I completely. Yeah buy into that feeling and I think Corbyn was quite lucky I think he hit a sweet spot where the the public and actually quite a large section of middle class people came to that they felt that themselves when I was doing my stand-up tour going around the country went to a lot of conservative areas we did a cute Tim came and did was a guest in one of my shows and we would have a discussion about politics afterwards and what was really interesting is a lot of people who said to me I have voted consistently conservative for quite a long time now, but I really believe, I feel, genuinely feel that this economy does not work for people like me, and I am working really, really hard. I'm a nurse, I'm a teacher, I'm a para paramedic. This isn't working for me or my family. I'm not seeing anything working for me. So I think that, I think that, that was right. But I suppose what I would like to ask you, Sam, is where does it go next? Because obviously, Labour did far better than, than any of us expected, but Labour didn't win. Do you think Corbynism, have we had peak Corbynism? Where can it go now? Do you think you can keep that sort of coalition? How do you add to it? How do you keep all those young people enthused? How do you get more people to join the herd? 
I think first of all, unheard. I think I think there's a practical thing. I think you know the Labour Party does need to have a root and branch review of its general election operation. I genuinely believe that if we'd had an early warning system and you know been able to better analyse some of our own canvassing returns by what, what do you mean early um, so warning? The Labour Party was completely blind going into polling day to the surge of support that had actually happened. So it that wasn't the that only party that was. It blind. wasn't the only party, <laughs> but bearing in mind that Labour Party has the ability to go out and to canvass mm, millions yeah. of people in a way the Conservative Party doesn't, as you sort of telephone calling systems, we were basically talking to the wrong people because we were using a system that wasn't designed essentially. And it sounds a bit technical, but I think it's important. Designed to go back to those people who in 2015 voted for Cameron, but are now moving across to us, or go to those young working class voters who are also moving to us because we didn't think they'd actually vote. If that had been picked up even 48 hours before, I think there were at least 15 seats that we could have won by deploying the huge resources from one seat to another. You know, you're talking, if you've got a seat that actually ended up with a 10,000 majority that we thought was marginal, and in fact, you know, three miles away there's a seat that we lost by 300 votes, and you had 500 to 1,000 people campaigning on election day, they could have gone and found those 300 votes to have got those extra seats, yeah. and obviously stopped the, the Conservatives having uh, uh, the sort of you know, ability to form that majority of the DUP. So is that just a practical thing? And I think that's not actually a, a left-right thing. I think you know there's some interesting stuff that's going to happen, actually, that will be announced shortly um, after the Labour Party conference about a coalition of people on the right and the left of the Labour Party to actually look at those kind of very practical issues and take the politics out of it and say it's about what works and how to improve. But on the politics stuff, I think that clearly they're going to have to expand and sustain the build-up of people who hadn't voted before, whether that's younger people, whether that's people who just felt excluded from the political process or just didn't ever vote. And that was interesting. When I was uh, spending time campaigning, particularly in seats where we thought that uh, UKIP were a huge threat and could be the difference between, you know, because we all thought that that might surge to the Conservatives rather than come back to Labour uh, or, or stay with, with UKIP. And in some of those seats, I mean, a number of things happened which I thought were very interesting. One the resonance of the manifesto mm -hmm. so that just obviously you know the polls quite clearly show that amongst older working class voters Labour did very very badly but a young but people in their sort of 30s up to about 40 and younger working class voters have done almost as well as they did within the middle class demographics and one of the reasons I found for that is when you went and spoke to people in places like Oldham um, or for example Burnley or, or, or maybe Bradford People were saying, look, you know, we voted UKIP because, yeah, we felt out of control of our country for a whole range of different reasons. And you're saying to them, well, we've got a manifesto that says, here's quite a clear strategy to take back control of our country. Would you like to take back control of the railways? Would you like to take back control of the water companies? Would you like to take back control of the energy companies? And they're going, yes, I would like a little bit of that, actually. And that's because, because I can see a tangible too difference. young to remember the economic disaster of the 1970s when all these policies were tried. Well, I think that's a separate <laughs> podcast discussion I'll be happy, uh, happy to, to have. But I think that that very clear narrative that things aren't in your control and we're offering a manifesto that says we're going to put things back in your control and for your benefit was one of the reasons we were able to pull far more people back from parties like UKIP and stop the kind of surge to the Conservatives that both it's many of us actually thought. Do, do you think the fact that people perceived Corbyn as being very Eurosceptic also helped you with those UKIP? Voters. I think there's no point denying that clearly Labour has been trying to ride two horses and you know we were both setting out a position but also being in some ways slightly opaque about that position throughout you know because actually the, the difficulty for Labour Party is more than the Conservatives 
our electoral co coalition that we have to build to win in so many seats is so divided around that kind of issue. And I think that in some ways that's potentially the biggest cha challenge because you've obviously got your kind of urban metropolitan areas, your more diverse areas, your younger voters who have all moved towards Corbyn. And in fact, we saw Kensington and Chelsea where clearly loads of Conservatives who may not ever vote for us again wanted to punish the government over Brexit and then came to vote for Labour. But there are obviously a considerable amount of seats where we have a big chunk, like where I'm from in Barking and Dagenham, you know, 70% of people near enough, you know, vote Labour, but also vote and voted for Brexit. And that is a, that is a huge change. And if we cannot keep riding both those horses, i.e. saying to um, one part of that coalition that actually we are listening to your interests as well, but to the other half, we're not going to betray you and basically try and reverse Brexit. You know, that probably is potentially Labour's biggest electoral challenge. But it's also a huge opportunity for you, though, isn't it? Because mm -hmm. you have a government completely preoccupied with Brexit. And so, therefore, you are the party that can talk about housing and um, tuition fees and investment in mm. uh, infrastructure. Because and it was interesting. The government yeah, is so distracted. So that election, I think, was interesting for me in that, you know, people said it was going to be the Brexit yeah. election. And in fact, actually, from Labour point of view, it was domestic policy election. You know, that worked very, very well. And I think there was, there was al already a kind of growing weariness amongst vast swathes of the population about Brexit. Yeah. Um, I think whether people voted for it or against yeah. it. And he loves it, Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> like, seriously, he's like, take back control every morning. I don't know whether you know about it, though. Earlier this week... I was at a party and I spotted her listening very attentively to William Rees-Mogg talking about Brexit. <laughs> there was a party Jacob. Jacob! Jacob Rees, oh my goodness, I am getting old. Um, Jacob Rees-Mogg, and she was one of the very few left-wing people there. I, I was I, there. I, I, you know, I've got I was, hope for you now. Asia. I was joking with Tim. Tim was like, what are you doing here? And I was like, I'm here to serve the drinks. And he actually believed me. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not your average kind of... It was our friend uh, Liam Halligan's um, book launch. But on the Brexit thing, Clean I completely... Brexit available all good bookshops at the moment. I mean, it's completely wrong. I mean, buy it, but it is completely wrong. It's a good place. <laughs> but interestingly, I, I I do agree. With you. I mean, Theresa May said this is this whole election about Brexit. I'm going to strengthen my mandate for Brexit. I actually think this became the election about school cuts, education mm. cuts, classroom cuts, not seeing your GP. All those really big bread and butter domestic issues came to the fore, and I think that's also because because the EU referendum has snarled up government for such a long time in the run up. To Brexit, there has been very little domestic policy advancement in this country going on for a very, very long time. One last question to um, Sam. A lot of people on my wing of the party, who obviously are critical about everything at the moment, as you can imagine, their concern is, hang on a minute, Corbyn's meant to be this working class hero, and this manifesto is actually very middle class. Is this a sign that Team Corbyn is compromising and is sort of triangulating and we you know we've seen triangulation on the Brexit position on Trident on on some of the manifesto stuff is this is this right is is team Corbyn kind of in the mood for compromise I think Corbyn's always been more compromising than people uh, in certain sections of the party give him credit for but I would say I don't agree with that I think that actually um, the manifesto fundamentally for me was about restructuring the economy and actually how are we ever going to meet the concerns of angry people in Dagenham or angry people in Burnley or wherever who voted for Brexit if we cannot have a serious programme of both investment and renewal in those communities that goes beyond just building a few smart and snazzy new buildings, actually brings the businesses in there, the tech industries, whatever, to create the high-paid jobs that those people are desperately craving. 
you know, if we can start to actually meet those kind of very real bread and butter concerns that people have, that for me is a manifest that will respond to the working class. I do agree with you though, we've clearly got to do some work to win back more culturally conservative older working class voters because actually there were a few seats where we like lost Mansfield like Mansfield yes yeah. where we lost uh, those seats because we weren't able to talk to those 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 voters my thought on that actually is that I'd like to see more prominence from um, some of our kind of northern spokespeople people like Rebecca Long Bailey who come from working class backgrounds Angela Rayner who I think do speak to those people understand those communities and can be those kind of people that go into those communities and say actually we have got an offer that's relevant for you but look from my point of view you know I work for a trade union that is quite radical on the environment because we essentially believe that's not a middle class issue it's because if we don't invest in the railways we don't actually have a serious conversation about climate change and you know maybe downscaling the amount of air travel that we all make there are no jobs on a dead planet and quite simply if we aren't able to tackle some of those issues it isn't about being more middle class it's actually saying there are clearly a number of issues that have different um, reaches into different parts of the population and to build our electoral coalition we're going to have something that speaks to every part of that but the core for me of all of this is about radically reforming the economy in the way that meets the interests and the needs of the many if we do that it's, I'm absolutely confident we will win the next election. Wow Sam thank you so much for being our guinea pig. <laughs> absolutely and, uh, very, uh, fascinating guinea pig um, at that <laughs> um, really enjoyed having you um, with us and it's not the only um, audio product that um, you can listen to on Unheard on uh, this week um, we've got two brilliant I think 30 minute interviews that we've posted one with Paul Mason talking about his economic policy agenda and then uh, well you think completely opposite but actually there's some interesting um, overlaps with um, Niall Ferguson um, talking about um, how he sees the crash and our response to it. They really are um, worth our um, waiting gold, uh, those uh, periods, uh, those, uh, those interviews, and um, I really recommend them to you. Um, do you think we'll be talking about Labour's conference next week, um, Aisha, or Theresa May's Brexit speech? Or Trump may have done something again, of course. <laughs> we we might not even be here. World War III might have like, kind of broken out by that point. Um, I think we will be talking about both. Um, the Florence speech is going to be, well, the build-up might be more exciting than the actual event, story of my life. But um, yeah, I think we'll definitely be talking about the Florence speech. And of course, the big political conference next week will be Labour. My feeling is that I don't think there will be a huge sort of rabbit out of the hat moment for Corbyn. He doesn't need to, as, as we've just heard from Sam Tarry. He's in a very secure position. He's had a good election campaign. But um, I think it's going to be a pretty upbeat Labour conference. It's going to feel a bit, I think, like Labour won the election, mm. except we didn't. <laughs> it's very important to remind people. No, I completely agree <laughs> on that point, actually. Now, I wanted, in uh, Trump's um, uh, UN speech, he talked about Rocket Man, didn't he? Um, <laughs> I wanted us to go out with the music to Rocket Man. We can't do that because it would be too expensive. And then I suggested we sing it, but uh, I think you want it. You're, you're not that keen on it. It'd be unfair to Sam to inflict that singing. I've not had enough so. wine. If this was, <laughs> if this has been recorded like two o'clock in the morning, I'd have no problem whatsoever. You're sing it. You your your listeners' ears would be bleeding, going, please make it stop. But I'd be wailing away, having a lovely time. And it might not only be our first podcast, it might be our last <laughs> podcast. Certainly for <laughs> listeners, if we, if we tried that. But, um, Lovely working with you, Aisha. And um, Sam, thank you very much. Absolute and um, pleasure. see you in Brighton, per Absolutely. perhaps.
Thanks very much for listening. Thank you.